I'm going to start this conversation in just a few minutes. I'm going to send some pings out right now. It's nice that uh, you guys have joined this evening. Um, I'm starting this late because I am feeling disadvantaged by that booster shot. Um, but, but I still want to talk about this. So I think I'm going to take a little bit of the intensity that I would normally put into my delivery out of the equation. Um, and and, and I, I want to talk about this idea of a public intellectual. <clears throat> I think, I think I want to talk about why um, I, I've been so critical of, of it, um, pro probably for longer than Clubhouse has existed. Uh, actually, most certainly longer than Clubhouse has existed. Um, but I'm, I'm going to ping a few more people in, so feel free to send some pings out. I, I'll start this in like 30 seconds. I think the conversation about public intellectuals started on Clubhouse um, like in May. And it's funny that uh, I was hosting rooms under a ramp, but it was the topic, not the club or the Substack. Uh, so it was like in the topic and it was like a rant on public intellectuals or something like that. And uh, it led to this broader conversation that uh, Victoria titled uh, really well uh, that was called uh, Public Intellectuals or Charlatans. And then it, it was called something about clout. And, and it had to do with clout chasing. but. I feel like there are like, if, if I was, I, I'm going off the top of my head right now. So if I was thinking about uh, public intellectuals as uh, like, if I was trying to create archetypes of public intellectuals, um, I, I think there are like the traditional types. They come out of the top universities. 
and, and there, you know, still very few people that hold the title of public intellectual, I guess you could say, or at least that reach the broader public. So I think there's the ones that come out of the top universities, and, and maybe it takes a while to get recognized. Maybe they don't get a microphone until they're in their 50s or 60s. It doesn't have to be young. Uh, but I'd say there's those types of public intellectuals. And then, uh, uh, and maybe they did something notable too, that's fine. Um, and then may maybe there's another type that just did something great with work, okay? Maybe they went to whatever school, they did something great with work. And then I think there's this channel of public intellectual that hardly gets discussed because uh, the ones that came out of the finest universities, that they have a monopoly on uh, a lot of public intellectual thought. Uh, you can, you know, do some research. The most popular uh, podcast platforms that are hosted by public intellectuals, um, it's pretty streamlined. Uh, most of them have advanced degrees of some sort. So when I was writing uh, uh, one of my Substack posts about public intellectuals, uh, Brian Keating had mentioned the fact that I was critical of the term black, like as in black intellectual. And uh, I... I So I started reading like Dr. Cornell West rhetoric from like, I don't know, must have been like the late 80s or early 90s, mid 90s, um, about like the actual like idea of black intellectuals. And uh, I don't think there's like any black intellectuals that address this question, maybe in uh, different ways, but I don't hear anybody talking about it publicly. Uh, people always come to me and, uh, you know, I would say on average, uh, I, I usually get to just hear about uh, what, who, who the intellectuals are. But, but uh, I would say there's also this category of people that only talks to me about these supposed black intellectuals. Uh, and Glenn Lowry is the name that comes up all the time. Coleman Hughes, I think he just like put out a rap video today, but for whatever reason he comes up, I have no idea why, uh, maybe because he has a really sterile, uh, disconnected way of talking about race and people think that's entertaining. Uh, and then he's protected by his blackness so he can talk about race in an even more incendiary manner than uh, a lot of people. Um, but so I, I was just thinking about like if the role of a public intellectual is to, uh, put their views or opinions out, uh, and obviously people probably trust their views and opinions because they're notable in some way, shape or form, then what's the role of a black intellectual? Uh, and, uh, so this set me on this kind of cycle of like trying to challenge the uh, just the term or whatever the definition that must be elusive of public intellectual is. And, and then 
uh, one of my opinions about the term uh, black intellectual, and nobody has agreed with me on this. <clears throat> I haven't had one person agree with me on this. But, but I feel like the term is used to represent like a second class of thought. Like it's always like I always cringe when people talk about book smart and street smart. Assuming that like what is street smart? Is it something you learn in the hood, uh, whatever that is. Uh, but um, a lot of your black intellectuals today aren't Glenn Lowry. They're hip hop artists. Not Coleman Hughes, uh, you know, it's people in music and sports. And, and then a very limited amount of these uh, black intellectuals go through the top universities. And so I was reading this piece that Glenn Lowry wrote, and, and it was interesting to me because, like, how can you be a black intellectual without, like, considering the plight of the people? If you're going to be labeled as somebody that can speak for a certain community. How can you do that if you don't suffer from the plight of the people? And uh, Glenn Lowry makes it really clear in a lot of his commentary that he's written over the years that, uh, that he went to MIT and uh, that, that he represents an elite class of black America. I'm like, oh man, that's how he justifies his ability to speak is because, uh, one, he thinks that he can talk for everyone. And then, um, uh, two, two he, he is part of an elite class of uh, ethnic minority. Hmm. And so, to me, that, you know, uh, Eric Weinstein has this issue where he talks about, like, uh, institutional gatekeeping which is like uh, it's really interesting how critical he is of the idea of institutional gatekeeping. I don't get it um, because I think that at all levels of society, there are different types of gatekeeping that exist. Um, but, but to me, the term black intellectual is kind of a form of gatekeeping. Uh, I think about like, like what did Glenn Lowry even study? I don't know. I would have to look it up because he just talks about whatever he wants. But why wouldn't his thoughts just be published as uh, intellectual? It's just a question I'm asking. So far, uh, I haven't had anybody that can visit with this topic. Uh, we saw how Eric reacted to the question, even though it wasn't pieced together as directly as it could have been. But, but like, why is Glenn Lowry a black intellectual? And then uh, uh, Eric is an intellectual. Uh, like, why is Coleman Hughes a black intellectual? And then uh, mm, mm, Sam Harris is a, a intellectual. Uh, like, even to broaden uh, the scope, like, who is... You know, who is a notable black intellectual that would be considered like top 100 uh, public intellectuals of the last, I don't know, 10 years? Like, you know, I see 
I see authors, I see scientists, I see heads of state, e economists, uh, Naomi Klein, she wrote a book, she wrote a book, this is what pisses me off about public intellectuals, Naomi Klein wrote a book called The Shock Doctrine, and uh, one of my friends who, uh, this is way back, but one of my friends who would consider himself like a, a Canadian liberal, he was uh, pretty anti-America, and uh, he was like, you need to read uh, uh, The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein, and I was like, all right. Anyways, um, The Shock Doctrine is like pawned off like it's like some sophisticated uh, uh, interpretation of like, uh, I don't know, mm, government's intent. And, and, and the, the assertion is that government's intent is negative uh, uh, and it seeks opportunities to take more power from people or, or to place more control on, onto people. And uh, Naomi Klein is interesting because uh, the, the book was so dark, but, but it was mostly conjecture, and, and it was mostly her opinion. But what happens with uh, this information, in my opinion, is that people take it so damn literally. And, uh, you know, like Naomi Klein, who's not credible, is now a part of conversations about uh, politics. And uh, it's just something that has always frustrated me. Uh, and I don't know if it's just my own arrogance um, or like why I, maybe I don't like the views and then I'm perceiving somebody that has a range of uh, ability to communicate on a topic and uh, but maybe it seems like their scope is expanding outside of the topic that they started with and uh, it's almost like uh, their perceived credibility is now a weapon maybe that's why I, I get frustrated with uh, some of these types that are considered public intellectuals and still uh, I haven't been able to find an answer as to why there's like a category based on people's race <clears throat> and is that still relevant like do we still have people that speak for an entire people and they're representing those views accurately or is the reality of uh, becoming a public intellectual is that really just a advanced ascent to power is that the point of being able to think publicly in front of an audience? Is it, a, is it an ascent? Is it an ascent to power? Like what makes, what motivates one to want to project their voice to that many people? Is seriously something that I, I think about. Uh, and I don't even know um, what, what Naomi Klein studied in school. I'm sure you'd have to do like a more advanced Google search than her name, but but she does talk about international relations and politics, and 
she's a journalist. It's like the opinion writers at these newspapers. They study journalism, but not the discipline that they're speaking on. Hmm. Why do they get so much voice? Hmm. Hey, Lex, I, uh, I'm, I'm taking the discussion a little bit slower tonight, so I've just been ranting. <laughs> I've been ranting for about 15 or 20 minutes. Um, I'm trying to have this discussion. I guess I've been having it with myself until you got here. I'm, tr I'm trying to have this discussion differently. Because um, I, I, I posted the conversations on Clubhouse about like the idea of a public intellectual and like what it represents. But, but it is still something that I, uh, I, I'm still a little confused by. And there's, uh, there's like uh, different questions that I like cycle through. Um, like one of the questions that I'm still trying to rectify in my mind is like, like is there an equal class of like, an, or should I say is there an equal stage for public intellectuals, or does the fact that the idea of a black intellectual exists, does that create a different class of thought? And, and there's probably a more cosmopolitan way to look at this, or a more global way. Uh, but it's not coming to mind. So I, I've really been mostly impromptu for this conversation. And uh, it's, it's, it's up to you if you have some thoughts. I obviously have a little bit more to say, but if, if you have some thoughts just in general, I'd, I'd love to hear them or kind of weave them into this discussion. Hey. Uh, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about the word public intellectual, uh, the intellectual in general. I was listening yesterday about pseudo-intellectuals uh, and... I'm so torn about it because uh, the word intellectual is something I really, I really like. I, I like, you know, I grew up as a fan listening to people think about this world and, and just, you know, just talk through it. And so I admire what it stands for. And then somehow I find myself in a place where intellectual is often used negatively by people now it's like oh well, that's just an intellectual and I'm, I'm also I connect with that because one of my resolutions ironic enough for this year is to do less talking and more doing which for me means something very specific because I'm an engineer so I can actually build stuff but I just feel like talking is sometimes empty and sometimes it's just vacuous just patting yourself on the back because you can say stuff and uh, using pretty language so I'm, I've been all torn about it what, whether I want to be, want to, whether I want to aspire to be an intellectual, or whether that's like the worst thing I could possibly be, is it the best thing I could be or the worst thing? And that, that, and so even like you creating a room with the word intellectual, that's why it kind of got me pulled in. Well, I wonder what uh, Christopher is doing, like how he sees intellectual. Does he, does he see himself as an intellectual? Uh, does, does he aspire to be an intellectual? <laughs> Or does he aspire to transcend this? Uh, it's like, does it become yet another word like influencer, you know? 
So it's I know awards are silly things, but they, you know they are. It still it still matters. Yeah, you know the issue that I have is that I actually um, like thoroughly enjoy speaking. And I think my addiction to speaking actually has probably come from the fact that, like, when I'm trying to put a system together, uh, I, I do it with speaking, and then I can put a map in my head. And um, so it's, it's probably made me use my voice more often than a lot of people want to. And I'm sure my friends are starting to get tired of me at this point in life because, you know, I got a little bit more flexibility than many of them do. And uh, I, I like to talk. <laughs> Everyone that knows me knows that I like to talk. I don't know why. I like to listen to. Um, but, but I feel like, uh, like only, only a few people, it seems, have ascended however that is to the arena where they have the option of being a public intellectual and, and it, it's something that I think about and then uh, uh, I, I do think that people that speak to large audiences ha ha have to have some kind of special ability because you, you do have to capture people's attention so I, I wouldn't want to trivialize that uh, there's been many compelling intellectuals over the, the years. Um, I just wonder if like the way that the information is being distributed uh, or, or like the, the mm, I wonder if like the technology is changing mm, who can have the crown? And then, um, what what are ways to make sure that that uh, mm, like can continue to make positive contributions? And, and and you know, the idea of like public intellectual is still really abstract to me. Uh, it's just something I want to talk about occasionally because uh, maybe there were extended periods in my life where I didn't agree with. Uh, a view, uh, you know, uh, with some specific individual, like just to be like too specific, like, uh, you know, something in politics or some type of corporation sh shit that I spend way too much time thinking about. Uh, maybe my frustration with the public intellectual at, at those points in my life was the, the lack of two way communication or the lack of like two way interaction and so so maybe technology is making people's thoughts even more accessible and and maybe there's still a lot of stuff on this topic that uh i am not acquainted with or uh th that i should um, do some more research about uh do you think like do you think there's like an importance to like public intellectuals as like like channels to to reach people like to communicate important information or to talk about things that can be harder to to talk about like you know in in a normal setting oh well, i personally see like what i remember when i was growing up i remember when the neighbors would come over and my them and my parents would drink and 
cigarettes, smoke cigarettes as they do in those days. And then we talk about all the ways the government is effing them over. And, or just the usual sort of philosophical conversations about life. About like uh, just uh, uh, private intellectualizing. And that's that's what I see public intellectuals as, as, as exactly as you said, is that conversation in the kitchen that I, I was overhearing my parents talk about. Uh, but now there's platforms that allow that conversation to be broadcast, just like ours is, to more people than just just a couple. You know, uh, those are the greatest conversations to me. It's those private conversations. So to me, it's not about the individual; it's about the conversation. And when when it's an individual, it's almost like a conversation with an individual. Like an individual's having a conversation with himself about an idea. And uh, to me, the magic of that doesn't require a large audience. Sometimes go to the bar and talk to somebody, and that's all the magic you need. So the public part just is more of a technology thing that's enabled now. It's pretty cool. But I get to tune in and listen in on some of these, what otherwise would have been private conversations. So I don't, I don't like the oratory of like, um, you, you get on the, you get on a stage at the podium and you're making big pronouncements. I like, I like the intimacy of just two people or one person or three people struggling with an idea. And if a lot of us get to listen in, that's awesome. That's so interesting. Like, okay, so just to contrast a little bit and then also, uh, I, I, would have a conversation way differently on the phone than I would on Clubhouse because they can't get the audience out of my psychology. Uh, um, but so, like, let's pretend that LeBron James is a public intellectual, which he most certainly is. He has a huge microphone. I actually think the fact that when that man was leaving Cleveland, and they were building um, that ridiculous team they put together that won two championships, the great team, Miami, the Heat. I actually thought the way that he made the announcement was like, mm. like I just love the intensity and the energy of uh, that kind of showmanship. It's like, I don't remember when it was. Like It was a long time ago, like 2007 or eight. But, but I do remember that ESPN covered this event and also other networks, which that's a lot of coverage on television back then. I'm sure it would have gotten even more today if it you know, happened now with all these uh, tools that we have. But, but there, is, there is something I like about the showmanship. Even if I think about um, like Barack Obama, I know he doesn't walk like that at home. But, but he has a great deal of swagger, and, and he doesn't hide it. And, and, and so there's something I was, I've always liked about that, that showmanship or that uh, precision. Um, but, but I'd have to change my perspective or the medium uh, to... And, you know, it, it's probably... This could be boiled down to, like, my own awareness, but... Uh, or maybe it's just my approach. Um, but but I, I definitely like the... Uh, I like the showmanship. If I uh, think about, like, uh, some of my favorite uh, public figures, if you will, or people that have done 
things that are creative or interesting. I mean, I am a huge fan, even though I can't defend this man's actions, I'm a huge fan of Kanye West. I, th I think the way that he works <clears throat> is so fascinating to watch. And uh, I, I, I think the showmanship that comes with taking his intellectual platform and uh, making a, an, a last-minute announcement, like an hour or two before the event, like some kind of pop-up event, I, I just love the excitement and the energy that comes with that. Um, you know, but, but I understand that that's not uh, everyone's approach. It's probably why I was such a big fan of, like, um, Deion Sanders. You know, I even, uh, I loved the energy that Conor McGregor fights would bring to Vegas. I loved that. So, you know, that, that's just kind of what, what I'm thinking about. Yeah, I, I agree with you. The, the great speech making is not the same without the large crowd. But uh, I, I, I was just speaking to myself that authenticity, uh, to me personally, is, is just has become more and more important. And that there's something inauthentic about speaking to a large audience. There's something very authentic about the privacy of the, 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 the intimacy of a conversation or a single person just thinking. Or maybe even in a small classroom where you, where you know each other. You're a teacher, and you're teaching to ten students that you know each other. That it, there's an authenticity to that. Like you're not trying to bullshit. You're not trying to uh, use words to captivate like an emotion in the crowd that just gets everybody fucking going. You know, it's it's more you're actually struggling in a genuine human way with ideas. So, I've, but again, I'm also a sucker, just like. Not just like you, but in the same way that you because <laughs> it sounds like what well, it sounds like you admire that even more than I do, mm -hmm. um, which is like great speech making, great kind of like showmanship and all that kind of stuff. I I'm a big, I've grown a little bit skeptical of it. I admire it, uh, but I wouldn't I don't see I wouldn't assign the word intellectual to it anymore. I would say it's entertainment. I don't know if you throw those uh, two in, into the same uh, place. But to me, when I see those large displays of of public, whatever you call it, is more, I, I just marvel at the, the fact that humanity can do this. That one descendant of ape got all these other descendants of apes excited, and they're all, like, excited, you know? Like, that. I just, it's cool, it's beautiful. But I wouldn't... Um, I don't. I see that as distinct from intellectualism, um, because uh, I don't think it's about ideas there anymore. It's more about just creating a beautiful spectacle of humanity. You know? <laughs> well, D. Lex, did you? Um, I I haven't watched sports in like two years, just so you know. I don't even turn the TV on. Um, so so, um, but. If I think back to sports, do you remember Allen Iverson by chance? Well, yeah, but I, I should uh, put this all on the table. I'm, um, first of all, obviously a UFC guy, but I'm also a football okay. guy, not a basketball or baseball Who, guy. Who's your football team? I, I grew up in a... Oh, God. Just do it. Come on. I have to admit mine, too. <laughs> okay. Well, so I'm a Green Bay Packers oh. fan. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
understand that. But but I have others. You know, I spent a long time in Boston, and I sh- I'm proudly, I didn't, you know, I I I wasn't. It's it's easy to become a Patriots fan when they're dominating. You know, and I I held my ground. I, I stayed a Packers fan. And I'm very proud of this. I never gave in. Aaron Rodgers is quite a spectacle, though. <laughs> like he's fascinating. You mean off the field? I feel like or- I feel like on the field and when he grabs the microphone. But I definitely think his career has been fascinating to watch. Oh yeah, but no, for sure. And so so is Brett Favre, which is the guy that came before him. Those those are you know the quarterbacks in football are fascinating. They are that they they do they do have a persona and they but some of it is us projecting certain things onto them and also romanticizing the whole game, which people do with some games more than others. They do that with boxing. They do that with baseball. Probably basketball too. Um. Uh, it's like we want we want the spectacle. I guess there is some aspect that we, we we want the public intellectual, right? We want to cheer on the. <laughs> we don't want the exchange of yeah. ideas. We want the spectacle. <laughs> Seriously, it's, it's a Jordan Peterson effect. I don't. You know, he's doing this whole tour now, and it's fascinating because I think a lot of people are fans of him and great, and um, so am I. But there's some aspect of which people also just want this you know, get together and celebrate something. Whatever's in the air when he's in the room, I'd be able to celebrate that. He's actually doing a tour, <laughs> like a public intellectual tour. It's like the mm-hmm. Rolling Stones or something. He's doing like a, he's doing like 200 shows or something crazy like that, 150 this year. It seems like they're, I don't know what is leading to him doing a tour, but I, I wonder if there's just less music playing. Like maybe people are a little bit quieter in general. Um, but even like um, even trying to take public intellectual and frame it under like sports, I, I always think about like um, the word intellectual as like a like I always think of it in like different playing styles. So. I know it's kind of lame, and I don't actually think that it lacks, um, like, uh, being genuine necessarily, but uh, I always liked Michael Vick's playing style. Even though he was a contentious figure, it just, like, it it was majestic to watch that man uh, throw and run and kind of break the rules at the time or for many years around, like, what type of offense you could build around a mobile quarterback. Like, like there were obviously mobile quarterbacks before Michael Vick, but, but I don't know if there were quarterbacks as mobile as Michael Vick. I, I understand there's been some new guys like R- Russell Wilson, and um, there's a number of them now. There's a lot of mobile quarterbacks, that, you know, RG3, who was a bust. But I understand there's been <clears throat> a number of them, but... But if I looked at Michael Vick's playing style as like that, that, that was his uh, way of demonstrating intellect. Uh, I, I just, I just like the hubris of his playing style. It's uh, it's that's why I brought up Allen Iverson, even though we're not talking about basketball. Um, but, but, but I don't know if 
I don't even know if the idea of a public intellectual would exist if it wasn't a spectacle. Like, I mean, think about the first time that a lot of young people get into Nietzsche <laughs> and they figure out that will to power is like actual philosophy. Like, it's a spectacle. You know, I mean, I, so I don't know. I feel like, um, I feel like even if it maybe doesn't take the, the, like the tone or texture of what I'm describing, I feel like it is still a spectacle, even if it's just a conversation between you and Elon Musk, even if you guys are just hanging out and relaxing and having a conversation, I feel like it is still a spectacle. Um, people are tuning in to two people that they're probably fascinated by, and uh, and they want to see the spectacle of your conversation, even if it is, you know, even if it's not for the audience, but, but the audience gets to experience it like a, a fly on the wall. So I feel like there's just maybe different ways to con construct the spectacle uh, of the public intellectual. Uh, like, think about how... Um, God, uh, is it, uh, what's his name? Hold on. Think about how Alan Watts came to the whiteboard. There's a video of Alan Watts on YouTube, and I'll, I'll have to look it up, but this man came to the whiteboard, <clears throat> and sometimes he would take the philosophy that he was putting down, and um, he, he would create, like, visual representations. Uh, but, but the way he would present the information like like is, is it possible to take in that kind of information without it uh, being a spectacle I don't know and maybe people receive that performance differently I, I don't know it's just you know yeah you're, you're changing my mind now I'm gonna have to think about this uh, I, I watched your lecture <laughs> I, I watched your lectures, Lex, and so I, I, everyone knows that we don't know each other personally, but they do know that we have discussions on the internet. But I watch your lectures, and I will tell you that you can put on a compelling lecture, and it's very different than uh, the presentation on the podcast, but, but may, maybe you understate your oratorial abilities. Well, one little inside note. I've always wanted to do with the lectures because I think the, the the camera on me in the lectures is often I don't think it shows people a crowd. I think it does sometimes, but I really always wanted to just do some of the lectures just so I control the world, uh, control, can troll the world, do it without an audience. There's a there's a Tom Waits video where he does an announcement of a tour he has upcoming. And that video, you know, there's there's a sound of a crowd, and then a bunch of reporters ask him questions as he answers them. And at the end of the video, he turns the camera around, and he shows that there's the, the room was empty all along, and it was just a record player playing. Every, everything we heard was just a, a record player. The crowd and the questions from the reporters and all of that. And I, I love that kind of... Um, the absurdity that it's all a show for everyone is everyone is like <laughs> playing a role in a play, uh, like it's some kind of theatrical production 
but yeah, definitely it's there. It's there. Like I had, uh, you know, I had, there's a reason I don't want to do lectures remotely. Why, why is that? Why, I don't know. Why, why do you think though? I'd love to hear this. Well, I had, uh, so what happens, I was supposed to be giving lectures, uh, this January and February, uh, in person. And I announced it probably was a mistake. And so there's a bunch of students from MIT from Harvard. And then, uh, unfortunately, probably also other people, uh, they, they said they want to go to just from Harvard and MIT. It was over 2,000 students signed up. And it was like, okay. So now I actually understood that I don't have a control of the situation, one. And two, the administration was very nervous about, like, Omicron. And, and you know, they, they sent me this email. If more than 50 people, if you think more than 50 people show up, we should probably try to do contact tracing on each of the people. And it's like, oh, okay, man. So obviously that was a way to pressure, you know, not to do the lecture in person. And so I was contending with this idea of like, okay, well, do you do it remotely or not? And I just, it was just, it's just so, I decided not to because I just, you're, you're missing, I don't know, just, just a single, I don't know, you're making me rethink things. Am I, I mean, just like... Aspect, am I just part of this? Am I just an admirer of spectacles? <laughs> I mean, I'm not even. I'm saying that only a few people can put a spectacle on um, that's worth watching, and so you have to think that like maybe people are born with that, or maybe it comes with. I have no clue. Um, but think about in the lecture hall the uh, acoustics of the room versus if you were doing a session remotely. I wonder if those types of things like the space, the light, the acoustics, the external stimuli, I wonder if that changes the way that uh, one mm, like re re receives or maybe perceives the environments, you know, whether they're aware of it or not. I don't know. I think for me, uh, to introspect, I think there's some aspect in which I'm just a, a kid trying to imitate the adults I've seen in the movies when I was growing up. So like there's some aspect to the lecture, which is I'm trying to be Richard Feynman. Mm. I'm trying oh, wow. to, you know, like I wonder if people growing up now that are fully comfortable with the internet would not have any of the same magic. Right. Maybe, maybe I'm just like, look at me, ma, I made it. <laughs> that's, that's why you want to lecture in person versus uh, it's actually somehow fundamentally different. I don't know. But there is a feeling of like, just you know, the uh, one or you catch the eyes of one or two people in the audience, and there's a smile or a glimmer of. I don't. Sometimes it's boredom, and you want to win them over. The, whatever that is, uh, yeah, there, it, that's there, and it's not there with the remote, for me. But that could be because I grew up without the internet. Why not grew up? You know, I, I. Um, I don't know, some aspect of my brain was formed before the internet. Anyway, yeah, I, <laughs> I want, I want, I, but I do know that a lot of students are super, they hate remote learning. Sure. So I think I, from the learning, from the teaching perspective, so maybe, maybe there, that is a part of education is the spectacle of it. You're yeah. saying like some people are, well, only some people are born. I, I think it's a spectrum, right? Like sure. uh, some of my favorite teachers, it was probably the spectacle mm -hmm. of it. 
Like there were, there's something about them, and sometimes it's not even the obvious things. It's the weird, like how they're dressed. Like uh, some of my favorite teachers, kind of dress in a way where it's obvious to me they don't give a fuck about what the world thinks about them. <laughs> <laughs> they they've lost touch with the reality because they're so obsessed about the subject that they're teaching, Ooh. and that that. So I just watch them kind of pace in their own little world. And it's like, uh, yeah, well, what if that contributes to the excitement you feel for the subject? Because it's like well, they're going to be your tour guide through this. And yeah, I, 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 yeah, you know, I don't know. You're, I mean, and then yeah, there's something to that. That the spectacle of it is is integral to the, the, the intellectualism. Yeah, and Lex, you, you have to. You think. might be out to something. Well, and you you have to think too. So like. Um... You know, if I'm just just if I'm doing this for the audience right now, and I'm just like aware of the setting, and it's a basic setting, it's not like we're at the Super Bowl, but you know, I open this room. I'm solo, so I'm still thankful and very surprised that anybody hangs out when I'm just on the microphone by myself. I didn't uh, hit you up; I just put you on the calendar, and you come into my solo. Uh, you know, like nine or ten minutes in, and I get a bunch of text messages and social media and messages here. So, so it obviously stimulated something. And then you know, Eric stops by, but, but, but he's silent, but he's here, you know, and, you know, suddenly the, the, the spectacle draws a larger crowd. So again, this crowd is nothing compared to, you know, these examples that we've been talking about um, in professional sports or academia, or even some of the many things that you do. Uh, but but so I, I just, I, I'm fascinated by the art and I, that's usually like, okay, so there's two ways that I look at the public intellectual and I'm super biased, but, but one is um, their communication style and, and, and their speech cadence and, and uh, how they use speech, which I understand varies depending on the setting, but publicly how they use speech and then the the other one is the content and i've 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 witnessed people where <clears throat> i didn't agree with any of the content but it was a spectacle to watch them speak and uh put their thoughts out or make an argument and uh and so it's challenging for me cuz uh you know it's clear that uh my microphone is growing uh you know c comparatively or or re relatively uh, and so I just keep thinking, like, what is the role of p public intellectuals, like, and, and how does that continue to, like, move society forward, you know? But, and I don't have the answer, and I'm not saying there is one, but it's, it's you know, it's just uh, a lot of critical information has been distributed to large masses of people. Uh, th through the, through this kind of spectacle, like there there's a reason that people sit down to watch a Bill Gates documentary, um, regardless of if they like the man or not. Um, he, he is prolific. Um, so I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I've been turning replays on more recently, and I don't want to spoil the moment, but. Uh, Maybe we'll wrap it up. 
I don't know if you have any like anything else that is on your mind as we've been talking about this for the last 45 minutes or so. I, I just like the spontaneity of this. I wasn't, I just got a cup of coffee, had a stressful day. I got a cup of coffee. I was going to listen to you. I love listening to Christopher. So I went into the room and here I am on stage. It's like my worst nightmare and, and I'm naked and everybody's looking at me. But I, I, stu I stuck around through the naked and uh, it was just a magical moment. And so I thank you for that. That's, that's um, the magic of Clubhouse, I guess. So I appreciate it. No, I appreciate it too. Last and now we're what? both public intellectuals in a <laughs> living a spectacle. <laughs> yeah, and Eric gave us a break tonight because, you know, I'm not, I'm not as sharp. I was telling everyone that I, uh, I took that damn uh, shot today and, you know, I'm kind of a candy ass, so I'm, I'm feeling it. I'll tell you that. Uh, I was actually kind of like, oh, I'm not going to run this room. And then I was like, eh, it's on the calendar. Um, so I, I go into this uh, whatever spectacle thing. I go into it with a more like open heuristic or maybe like a hand wave almost. Uh, and, and there's probably things that I'm aware of or different things that I might consider, but I, I don't try to be uh, prepared. Um, so I think the impromptu nature of a performance, uh, you know, that's back to me referring to how Kanye West would do pop-up fashion shows that he would announce like two hours before or these last-minute concerts where they'd be at a stadium that seats 20, 30, 40,000 people and the tickets would go on sale at 10 o'clock the night before the morning of. Um, so I, I just wanted to say um, one last thing while we're here and then also just leave kind of a little bit of room for silence and pondering if any other last thoughts come to you, Lex. But... I just wanted to say, you know, follow my fucking club, a rant. And uh, if you get bored, uh, I'm starting to develop my, uh, uh, my sub stack. And I'm also hosting um, some really interesting guests. And, uh, and I've been experimenting a great deal with my writing. I, I've had my head down. Um, so s some of it might be interesting to you, but in, in the least, in the least, in the least, uh, thought-provoking. So definitely feel free to click the link and su subscribe to the club. I, I know that's a dirty plug. I do feel uh, gross about it, but I, I just got to let you know, like, you know, it's, it's okay to subscribe to my Substack. <laughs> um, it's okay to do that. So I, I, I really appreciate that. Um, so Lex, uh, just, you know, I'm going to leave the mic silent you know, maybe for 30 seconds. If another thought comes into your mind, uh, you know, put it out there. I don't even need the 30 seconds. I think uh, all I have to say is subscribe or just fucking subscribe <laughs> to Christopher's Substack. No, I appreciate that. He's, uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a good guy to follow. I really appreciate you, man. Um, I enjoy you're You're one of the only reasons I come back to this place. Uh, well, so the main reason is the Russian rooms. I'm practicing <laughs> Russian. But in the, out of the English-speaking world, I enjoy listening to you and with ideas. So you're my favorite public intellectual on here. So <laughs> continue doing, continue uh, living the spectacle, brother. Uh, I Thanks appreciate so that, Lex. Thank you. Um, 
Yeah, so I this uh, there's going to be a replay of this, and this is only the second replay that I've uh, allowed for any or allowed to be recorded. So it's really nice of Lex and Eric to join. And um, again, just subscribe to my Substack. Seriously, people, come on now. I, there's a lot of friends in the audience too, and uh, I, I'm going to close this room down in a few minutes. That's why I'm not taking any of the um, hands raised, but Geez, there's so many friends in here. So cool. Super glad that you guys joined. Uh, subscribe to my Substack. And uh, just so you know, um, I, I this is a part of a series of about five rooms that I've been hosting. So it's I did the first one uh, last week, and it was on. Um, it, it was like it was a, uh, it was banking, which I hate that industry. The Federal Reserve. And then I tried to tie it all the way back to Web3. Jeez, that's a reach, because that's all anybody wants to talk about these days. And I'm sure a lot of people are bored with banking in the Federal Reserve. But that conversation's in the replays. Um, and it was just me and one other person. And it was interesting. And then um, the, the next conversation I'm going to host, it, I mean, it's, it's take, it'll probably take shape with some of the dynamics or kind of ways that I've described uh, public intellectuals tonight. Um, but I, I'm going to do uh, what I would consider like a, a retrospective analysis on Steve Jobs. But, but I'm, I'm really going to put my own opinions on it because I'm, I'm going to try to look at him how I would look at like art in the museum. And there's different lenses that I can assess him through. Like I, I could start with him as a manager of a publicly traded company. Like that's a perfectly viable way to assess him, um, which I don't think gets assessed very often because you're not assessing the way the manager is perceived as much as you're assessing the financial statements and the performance of the company, but it, it won't be that dry. <clears throat> it's still gonna be impromptu. So that'll be on Thursday at eight o'clock mountain. And then um, there's another discussion that I'm hosting Tuesday, January 5th. Uh, I don't know if I'll change the title, um, but I want to talk about the brutality of natural law and economics. So it's called Winners and Losers, Global Finance and Political Economy. This will be on Tuesday, January 25th, and um, it says 6 p.m. Mountain, but I'm going to move that to 8, you know, because basically I'm going to host all of these conversations at um, 8 o'clock Mountain. And then this really important conversation that I want to have um, that is going to come with a number of um, a number of things I've been thinking about. Uh, so it's called it's called ESG, environmental social governance. Some of you know what that is. Uh, engine number one, which is the hedge fund that was able to. Uh, buy the cheapest stake I've ever seen on a publicly traded company and unseat three board members. So, so I want to talk about engine number one. And, and then I, I'm going to talk about something that I think is really going to start to shape the way that I write and publish in um, Substack. But, but I'm going to talk about corporate activism because I, I do think there are um, different ways that that plays out. And so the conversation on January 27th titled ESG engine number one and corporate activism and in that conversation uh, my, my objective is not to be critical 
I just want to observe the ways that I think uh, ESG has changed decision making and asset allocation. And I do want to see if it lives up to the environmental and, and social part of uh, governance. And, and you have to keep in mind that governance inside of a corporation doesn't necessarily come from the managers per se. It, it comes from the board, hence why uh, uh, that is a great way to control the way that the corporation thinks and makes decisions or the way it behaves. To, you know, it's a great way to shape its behavior. It's from the board because one of the independent directors up there or a couple of them are responsible for uh, governance. And, and, I, and I do believe there are uh, still uh, personal uh, uh, liabilities associated with that task, uh, I'm not positive. Um, but, but I definitely want to talk about uh, engine number one because I've been watching them and it's a grandiose example of uh, 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 corporate activism. And I, I just want to see if it is living up to the promises that are around environmental and social, um, or if it is doing what any other instrument like engine number one would do, um, which is just to create a material impact for the managers of that hedge fund. <laughs> so, all right. <laughs> I'm going to shut this down, but it was amazing, and it's really cool to be here with you guys. And I, I'm sorry, uh, it was just me and Lex. Eric came up for a moment. Um, but feel free to check the replay out if you want to see how the conversation progressed. And then uh, subscribe to my Substack. All right, I'm closing it down for real this time. You guys are uh, amazing. Uh, Substack, a rant. See you soon. Check the replay out if you missed the beginning of the conversation. See you soon. Bye, friends. <laughs>